0: Section Thirty-One of the Heroines of History. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stacy Cologne. The Heroines of History by John S. Jenkins. Mary of Scotland, Part Five. The 26th of July, 1567, was perhaps the saddest of all the sad days of this hapless queen. Sir Robert Melville and Lord Lindsay came to make her abdicate her throne. Melville first saw her, and used his persuasive talent to the utmost, but without effect. The savage Lindsay was next admitted. He at once broke forth in fierce threats, vowing to the unprotected queen that if she did not immediately sign the papers of abdication brought with them he would sign them with her blood and cast her into the lake beneath the window mary had known his sanguinary part in the rizzio tragedy she now saw him about to draw his dagger as she supposed melville adroitly whispered to her that acts done under compulsion would not be binding if she ever should choose to disown them in an agony of tears and terror she put her name to the documents wherein she was made to say that she freely resigned her crown, being wearied with the labors of government. Thus did this woman, whose honorable ambition was her ruling passion, suddenly find herself no more a sovereign. Four days afterward her son James, then one year old, was crowned at Stirling. All commands were published in his name, Buchanan, one of Mary's bitterest enemies, was made his tutor, and from that time contempt for his own mother was carefully instilled into the child's mind. Murray soon returned to Scotland. With characteristic circumspection, he did not at first commit himself to either party. The Regency, during James's minority, was urged upon him. He went to Lochleven and counterfeiting great sympathy for Mary, prevailed on her to approve his assuming that office for her sake, at edinburgh he pretended much humility and a regret that the choice had fallen upon him but took the oaths of regent he set himself energetically and carefully at work to suppress discontent and to strengthen his power for a virtual reign in james's name that promised to endure many years and to make assurance doubly sure love-letters were now forged and produced purporting to be from mary to bothwell and implicating her in darnley's murder the summit of his ambition appeared to be attained when mary a light-hearted girl of eighteen in sunny france received the respectful visits of her scottish earls little did she foresee how strangely the dark threads of the lives of the two of them were to be interwoven with the fair fibres of her own for the first seven months of her imprisonment the gloom of the poor queen was unalleviated by one ray of hope in four short months An unparalleled series of misfortunes, wrongs, and insults had fallen upon her. The Lady of Lochleven, a former dismissed courtesan of her father, was bitter and malicious. One of the chief servants of the castle was concerned in Rizzio's death, and declared he would gladly kill the queen. Her own servants were her only solace and protection. These were faithful and tender, yet even with their aid she had no chance of escape but in March, 1568, a new light shone into her prison. A son of the lady keeper, George Douglas, aged 25, and a relative of the family, William Douglas, 17 years old, had entertained a very romantic interest in the beautiful and luckless Mary. They now arranged a plan for her escape. She clothed herself in the garments of her laundress, concealing her face, and bundle in hand, passed out of the castle and took the boat in waiting. But, The boatmen discovered her delicate hands and despite her commands as their queen took her back to the castle the resolute and chivalric george and william did not relinquish the idea of rescuing their lovely sovereign five weeks after another scheme was formed and this time successfully carried out on the second of may william abstracted the keys of the castle from the family supper table where they had been laid locked the whole household in as he passed out helped mary out of the one window into a boat prepared for her threw the keys into the lake and with the assistance of mary herself at the oars soon placed her exultingly in the hands of several of her trusty lords who were waiting with the guard to receive her quickly mounting and riding rapidly with little rest they arrived with her at hamilton palace early in the forenoon of the next day the whole land was aroused by the news of her escape multitudes of every grade gathered to her assistance among them nine earls nine bishops eighteen lords and many barons and gentlemen six thousand soldiers were at her command before the week closed she renounced her forced abdication melville himself appearing and testifying to the circumstances murray's friends began to silently withdraw from him He was at glasgow near the headquarters of mary he saw the need of instant action to arrest her intention to fortify herself in dumbarton castle which is situated on a lofty pyramid of rock and was a place of impregnable strength she was already on the way with her troops murray called together some four thousand men and met the queen's army at langside two miles south of glasgow both armies endeavored to gain a commanding hill Murray, by the advice of a veteran, mounted his infantry behind the troopers' saddles and reached the point first. A fierce battle ensued, for a long time doubtful, but at last decided by a reinforcement of Highlanders in favor of the regent. Mary watched the scene in unimaginable excitement, and, overwhelmed at the result, cried out that it were better for her not to have been born. There was no time for delay. With a few attendants, she put her excellent horsemanship to full proof, and never paused until she was sixty miles away to the south at the Abbey of Dundrennan. She was advised to sail for France, but was too proud to enter as a fugitive the land she had reigned over in splendor as the queen of a triple scepter. Nor would it do for her to apply for aid to a Catholic country. It would hazard her crown too much. She trusted that Elizabeth would at least give her refuge and applied for it unable to wait for a reply she made her way by land and water to the vicinity of the castle of carlisle in england men of rank came to meet her and conducted her with great respect to the castle elizabeth sent hypocritical messages of sympathy she privately exulted in the climax of her wishes the apparent ruin of mary she did not know how far it was prudent to take advantage of her power and waited to consult with murray With the excuse that Mary was in danger from her Scottish enemies, the castle was repaired, she at all times kept under guard, and her walks and rides finally prevented altogether. For the same ostensible reason, she was, not long after, removed farther south to Bolton Castle in the north of Yorkshire. Elizabeth's course was soon settled she conferred with murray who had dispersed the renewed gatherings of forces in mary's cause and busily entrenched himself in his ill-gotten authority the plan was to bring the queen of scots to what amounted to a criminal trial and by foul means make her stand condemned before the world she was called on to appoint commissioners to meet those of murray and others named by elizabeth to settle all disputes between her and the regent against this she protested as a sovereign who could not be placed on a level with rebels to herself but was ultimately persuaded to thus vindicate her honor the english queen from first to last acted with a cunning as fiendish in its subtlety as in its malice the commissioners met at york on the fourth of october fifteen sixty eight notwithstanding murray's utmost efforts the case seemed to be going against him elizabeth to give her influence a more deadly certainty removed the conference to Westminster, and received Murray to her presence, whereas she had cruelly and unjustly refused to see Mary, the royal defendant, as if her pretended purity could not come in contact with one on whom rested suspicions which Elizabeth herself, after the mock trial even, declared to Mary she did not believe. With her quick intelligence and decision, Mary instructed her commissioners to withdraw from the council, and thus dissolve it, because it was so evidently unfair to adjourn it to a great distance from the accused, and to admit the accusers to opportunities denied to herself. Before this order reached her friends, Murray had, as a last resort, brought forward the forged love letters and sonnets ascribed to Mary, and involving her in the death of Darnley. The evidences for their suspiciousness need not be recounted the way they were used and at other times neglected to be used by the usurpers of the queen's power is enough to brand them as false the conference was broken up but murray and his spinster dictator arranged a little scene in which he was reprimanded and in defence brought forward an elaborate written statement of charges and proofs which england might employ in various ways and a reply to which was denied reception thus the whole infamous plot did not succeed but the great point was sufficiently gained namely to so overshadow the character of one of the earth's noblest and purest heroines that she could be held in lingering captivity the retribution that followed the perfidious actors in this history is remarkable Murray did not long enjoy his success. He was shot by Hamilton in revenge of maddening injuries done to the family of the latter by the troops of the former, and the tears Mary shed for him were witness to some good in his character, but more to the lofty magnanimity of her own. Lennox and Morton, who succeeded him, and other participants in the same events, after covering themselves with crime or cruelty or treachery one by one met a violent death, they that took the sword perished by the sword mary was but twenty-five when she entered england in the first full bloom of body and mind she was doomed to a thraldom of eighteen years that gradually destroyed her spirits and health and ended in the bloody vengeance of the axe. this portion of her life was as much more heroic than the days of her active achievements as the virtues of endurance and resignation are more noble than executive talent She ceased to be the acknowledged Queen of Scotland, but she gained the kingdom of her own ambitious and afflicted heart, and she was purified like gold tried in the fire for the kingdom of heaven. She was taken from one castle to another and committed to the charge of one lord after another, in order that she might neither gain too much influence over her keepers nor carry out a plan of escape. Her luxuries, comforts, attendants, and friends were continually diminished through the relentless hatred of her oppressor and her communications with friends at a distance was intercepted as far as possible. She employed herself in embroidery, reading and writing. Some of her poetical efforts are preserved, and are beautiful memorials of her genius, her grief, and her Christian faith. And well did she need all resources to beguile her weary days and make her forget awhile while her discomfort. She had gradually ceased to be remembered, and her strong party at home was by degrees suppressed and thinned by death her hair turned prematurely gray with sorrow her strength from want of exercise miserable fare and bad accommodations failed her a painful symptom of disease in her left side began to grow upon her she thus describes her residence at tutbury in sixteen eighty this edifice detached from the walls about twenty feet is sunk so low that the rampart of earth behind the wall is level with the highest part of the building so that here the sun can never penetrate neither does any pure air ever visit this habitation on which descend drizzling damps and eternal fogs to such excess that not an article of furniture can be placed beneath the roof but in four days it becomes covered with green mould i leave you to judge in what manner such humidity must act upon the human frame and to say everything in one word the apartments are in general more like dungeons for the vilest criminals than suited to persons of a station far inferior to mine inasmuch as i do not believe there is a lord or gentleman or even yeoman in the kingdom who would patiently endure the penance of living in so wretched a habitation with regard to accommodation i have for my own person but two miserable little chambers so intensely cold during the night that, but for the ramparts and entrenchments of tapestry and curtains, it would be impossible to prolong my existence. And for those who have set up with me during my illness, not one has escaped malady. For taking air and exercise I have but a quarter of an acre behind the stables. To aggravate her miseries, a poor priest of her faith was hung before her window. These accounts are translated from her letters in French. She who is the glory of the Louvre and the pride of Holyrood was at last the neglected prisoner of a decaying hunting lodge in the midst of an English forest. Many conspiracies were formed and attempts made to release her and restore her to her throne. The chief of these was by the Duke of Norfolk, an English noble and the most powerful subject in Europe. He proposed secretly for Mary's hand and was assured that, though on general ground she was averse to another marriage, yet she would favor his project and his suit. For this he was on discovery imprisoned prison nine months in the Tower of London. When released, he set about his scheme with all the more determination. Spain and Rome were to aid his cause, the Duke of Alva to land with an army, the English Catholics to rise, and the government to be overturned. But a second discovery of his purpose sent him to the block he died like a hero mary disclaimed all knowledge of his treasonable designs toward elizabeth though she admitted his efforts to release herself and she was not therefore made to suffer on his account simple devotion to a lovely and suffering queen and private ambition were not the only causes of disquiet in england from whatever motive trouble was made it inevitably seized upon mary's fame as its rallying word hence an association of nobles was formed and sanctioned by parliament for the purpose of prosecuting to death any person for whom as well as by whom any movement against the government was set on foot never was there a more absurdly unjust course of procedure adopted it became a law and soon had occasion of execution against its real object the queen of scots in 1586 a new conspiracy was headed by anthony babington a young man of wealth in derbyshire who had heard much of mary while he was at paris he was to be aided in the same manner as the duke of norfolk some letters passed between him and mary but there is no evidence of her initiation into the treasonable part of the plan it was discovered fourteen of the leaders were executed six of whom were pledged to assassinate the english queen before the news had reached mary she was officially informed that she was to be held to trial as an accomplice the nation was so greatly excited that elizabeth saw that she might prudently go to any extremity against her admired prisoner mary denied the jurisdiction of another monarch over her but as before she was persuaded to submit to trial lest a refusal be a tacit acknowledgment of guilt the mockery of a court was held at fotheringay castle in its great hall with much pomp. The daughter of a hundred kings appeared, worn out with confinement and grief, but still resolute, calm, and discerning, before the greatest lawyers and politicians of the realm, and so ably answered their arguments that, on the testimony of her enemies who described the scene, she confounded her prosecutors. The old artifice was again used. The court was adjourned to a distance from her at Westminster, and there, of course, she was condemned the shameless tyrant of england made a great show of reluctance to sign the death warrant and waited to see what effect the verdict would have abroad the king of france interposed feebly the king of scotland would have saved his mother but was falsely counselled and too timid though now nineteen years of age the warrant was signed and the man to whom it was given was subsequently imprisoned for life on the hypocritical plea that he had received royal instructions not to have it executed. And the man who was the keeper of the doomed victim was enjoined by Elizabeth to secretly murder his prisoner before the sentence could be carried into effect, but he declined the wickedness. His name is Sir Amias Paulette. Mary requested that her servants might witness her constancy in death, and that her body might be buried according to the rites of her church or carried to france but no reply is known to have been made on the afternoon of the seventh of february fifteen eighty seven the earls who were to carry out the sentence reached mary's prison at fotheringay they respectfully disclosed their business she heard them calmly as they read the death warrant she expressed a cheerful willingness to die and made solemn oath on the bible that she was innocent of the charge for which she was to suffer She inquired about her son, and the conditions of things abroad, concerning which she had been kept in ignorance. When she found that the execution was to take place at eight o'clock the next morning, she manifested some emotion, but soon regained her serenity. From the first, however, her attendants, consisting of six waiting maids, a physician, surgeon, apothecary, and four male servants, were extremely agitated, and— when the lords retired made great lamentations. She knelt with them and prayed. At supper, the last repast with her household, she ate lightly, conversed but little, looked smilingly, and drank the health of all around her calling them by name. Then she carefully disposed of all her money, furniture, and jewels, forgetting none of her friends near her or at a distance after this she wrote letters and her will which occupied two large sheets and is a fine memento of her strong and lucid intellect and of her noble heart at two o'clock in the morning she retired to her bed and rose at daybreak gathered her little company of adherents and continued in prayer until a knock at the door announced the faded hour no priest was allowed her her attendants were forbidden to see her die but on further entreaty four males and two females of these were permitted to accompany her to melville the chief of her train she said weeping tell my son that i thought of him in my last moments and that i have never yielded either in word or deed to aught that might lead to his prejudice desire him to preserve the memory of his unfortunate parent and may he be a thousand times more happy and more prosperous than she has been. She perished in the room that had been the scene of her trial. A scaffold, carpeted with black, was at one end, and on it were two English earls and the executioners. Thither she was led, Melville bearing the train of her royal robe. She was dressed in state. She wore a gown of black silk bordered with crimson velvet, over which was a satin mantle a long veil of white crape stiffened with wire and edged with rich lace hung down almost to the ground round her neck was suspended an ivory crucifix the ruins of her former stately and blooming self she was still beautiful and dignified the warrant of death was read aloud she trembled not nor changed her sublime tranquillity of countenance The dean of Peterborough stepped forth from the two hundred spectators and soldiers and began to lecture her on points of doctrine. She turned from him, knelt, and prayed aloud for her enemies and for the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Rising, her veil and necklace were removed, the cross she was about to give to Jane Kennedy, but the executioner snatched it away as part of his customary spoils. Her eyes were bound with a gold-embroidered handkerchief, her head laid on the block, and from her lips breathed the words o lord in thee have i hoped and into thy hands i commit my spirit three awkward blows of the axe severed her neck her head was held up to the gaze of the dumb crowd the executioner cried god save elizabeth queen of england the earl of kent responded thus perish all her enemies her remains were left rolled up in old green bays taken from a billiard table afterwards buried with display in the Peterborough Cathedral, and finally a quarter of a century afterward placed in a splendid tomb at Westminster Abbey by her son James, who removed every vestige of the scene of her trial and death Fotheringay Castle. Mary reached the age of forty-five years. Her active life was between the ages of sixteen and twenty-five. No queen ever possessed higher talents or virtues, her faults were the noble ones of a warm, trustful heart and of ardent youth. She confided in the treacherous too often. She had not learned that there are always many persons utterly dead to every claim of reason, honor, and generosity. Reigning in maturer years, she would have vindicated her commanding intellect. As her enemies were often detestable in the face of their truer belief, so was she tolerant, deeply religious, and grandly upright, in spite of her superstitious creed, her character was frank and beautifully proportionate. Never would mere brilliancy of person and of mind have excited such glowing friendships, such bitter envies, such lasting admiration and world-wide sympathy. End of section 31. Recording by Stacy Cologne, Fort Worth, Texas.